that's really uh, neat, the gospel going there. It's a lot of talent to be able to move like that in a canoe. Chris, do you think you could do that? I think we should uh, get a canoe to see if Chris can do that. Uh, <laughs> uh, that'd be great. This, uh, it's this Saturday that's the packing party, right? Uh, I would encourage you to come out for it. Uh, you don't have to bring anything. Uh, stuff will be here, and all you'll need to do is um, just help put things in the, the boxes. Uh, if you would like to help uh, and can come a little bit earlier, like, say, 3.30, uh, we can put some uh, tables and chairs out so that after all the boxes are uh, packed, we can have a, a time of fellowship. There'll be hamburgers and hot dogs. Uh, but, you know, hamburgers and hot dogs, you know, just by themselves isn't, isn't that great. So if you bring like a, like a side, like, you know, some tacos or uh, tamales or something like that, I think it'll make the hamburgers a little bit better. Uh, so I, I encourage you to bring something aside to share, a dessert. Dessert goes really good with these things, too. And uh, we'll have a, a great time. Uh, we've got um, uh, volleyball going to be set up. We've got branches cut on the other tree over there, so that volleyball net can be used. So we could actually have two games going at the same time. So uh, I encourage you. This is a, a neat event. So there are events that... Uh, that sometimes churches will engage in, which is a uh, come and watch uh, event, and so the, the audience becomes very passive. Uh, but this wouldn't be a come and watch. This is something that you can invite your unsaved neighbor to come and say, hey, we're going to be packing things for kids. Uh, why don't you come with us? Uh, at the beginning, we'll have a, 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 a gospel presentation to share why we're going to be packing these boxes. So uh, you can invite a, an unsaved friend, hey, we're going to do this thing for kids, and uh, why don't you come and help us? And they'll come and they'll help pack up boxes and they'll get to hear the gospel. And then they'll get to stay for a hot dog and a hamburger. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses 4 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, 4 through 6. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 4, this is the word of the Lord. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray now that uh, as we contemplate what is being presented here, that we can demonstrate through our actions this type of unity. Father, there might be someone here that doesn't have this type of unity because they've never trusted Christ as their Savior, and I pray that the Spirit would convict uh, them of their sin and that they would put their faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Father, I pray for uh, others who maybe are not living in unity, that today they will see this text and repent and, and be unified. Uh, this I ask in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, the title for the sermon is We're Not Special. And uh, I, 
they usually say, you know, you don't want to discourage church members. And um, with a title like We're Not Special is um, not very encouraging. And, and many might be thinking, I had a really rough week, and now you know, I come here and you tell me I'm not special. That doesn't seem very encouraging to me. Uh, but uh, we live in a very difficult time. We, we live in a time when individuals uh, want to try to ignore differences. I mean, they try to uh, overlook differences, and they'll say things as, uh, uh, I, I don't see any differences, I only see people. Well, that type of attitude sometimes isn't very helpful. I mean, you can imagine riding on a bus, and uh, a, a lot of the older buses have the, uh, the thing to, to stop the bus, the little ringer thing kind of up at top. And so you're riding on the bus, and somebody very short gets on the bus, and they want to get off. Nobody else is getting off, so somebody has to ring the thing. If you go around with this idea that I only see people, then you're not going to help this person who needs to get off at this bus stop. It's important to, to see differences to be able to help. Uh, but on a flip side, where there's people that say, well, I don't see any differences at all, there, there's some people that want to make everybody special. I mean, everybody is special. And this is a little bit uh, self-contradictory because if everybody's special, then nobody's special, right? I mean, they're, they're just that's the way it is. And, and parents are are the worst at this. I mean, they they'll almost go to fistfights over how smart their kid is, and they don't understand why they're getting an F uh, because they're the smartest kid in class, you know. And and you know, they show this paper, and it's like all types of weird stuff, um, and, and like that's not really a research paper, it's more like a copy and paste from Wikipedia, my son's a genius, you know, uh, th there's this idea that sometimes people want to say, you know, their kid is just, just really brilliant, and, and so they're really, really special, and so this, we live in this time where there's no differences, but certain people are, are super special, and, and we live in this it's very conflicting, and Paul presents something here which kind of goes against both of those currents, uh, which is calling for a unity. Now, there's two themes in this letter. Uh, one theme is unity, and the other one is love. And these, these themes he keeps on intertwining one with another. Now, he's writing to this church in Ephesus, but then he's also writing to a much bigger audience, which is the body of Christ. Uh, it's not just the local church, but the body of Christ in general. Uh, some of the things that he's discussing are not just particular to the church at Ephesus, but uh, are all those who are in the church. Now, some don't like this uh, universal aspect of the church or this Catholic aspect of the church, and, and they want to try to maybe reduce what they find in Ephesians down to a local church issue, and, and then they start saying that each local church is, is a body of Christ. Uh, then you end up having like a lot of bodies of Christ. I mean, it, it makes for a really strange theology. And, and really, it, it doesn't go well with what's being presented here in Ephesians. That this uh, Christ ascended, and as after Christ ascended, then there's this church, which is the body of Christ. And people are being added to it through the Spirit who seals those who believe. Now, as we look at this, we're going to see that God unites he unites. Uh, we're not special, so we should humbly serve God and serve others. And that's what we're going to see. Uh, we're not special, so we should humbly serve God and serve others. Uh, he's going to look at seven ones, uh, seven ones here in 
verse 4, we see the first, which is one body. Now, contextually, what body is he talking about? Contextually, that would be the body of Christ, where Christ is the head, Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23, and the body of Christ is the church. This uh, headship is not given until after he ascends, so you don't have a church during the time of, of Christ. You don't have a church before Christ. You have a church after Christ ascends. It's this body. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, you see that there's a new creation being formed where uh, the Jew and the Gentile being brought together into one body. Now, uh, this is something that was hidden. It was a mystery, Ephesians chapter 3, 8 and 9. It wasn't known in the Old Testament, so we wouldn't be looking in the Old Testament for this concept of a body uh, of Christ because it's something that was a mystery. Now, thinking about this, this body, there's just one body. There's one body of Christ. There's not multiple bodies of Christ. There's one. And for some, this causes a little bit of an issue. You imagine where uh, a wife has been abused by, by a husband. And lo and behold, both get saved. And she's saying, whoa, 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 what are you saying? that He's in that body now with me? I, I did everything I could to get away from this guy. You know, I hoped he would rot in prison. And now you're saying that there's only one body and that this guy is saved and now he's in that body? Or you can imagine something else, uh, yeah, an abuse situation of uh, a rape, uh, somebody who is racist, and, and the person says, oh, wait a minute, you're telling me that that person is also going to be there, they, they get saved, and that person's going to be there in, in the body of Christ, we're going to be together? And, and that creates a conflict for some people to look at that there is just one body. Now, we can't go into all the details of how to solve all of those issues, but there's something very interesting that God uh, ends up forgiving that person and puts them into the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Now, we have to examine a little bit. Is the offense that that person has done greater to God or to the individual? Well, it's of greater offense what they have done against God, and yet God has forgiven that person, and placed them into the, the body of Christ. Now, we, we can't understand always God, and, and we shouldn't question his counsel, but we should accept it. And, and it's important to think about this because we're all in one body. It's not like, uh, well, I'm super special, and so I'm in, I'm in this body, but then there's these other Christians, and they're in this other body of Christ. No. There's one body, all together, all united in one body. And not only is there one body, but the next one is one spirit. And we looked at last week that it really doesn't make sense to talk about the spirit as being possibly an uh, individual person's spirit, or even a spirit as in a feeling, like a, an ambiance per se. But rather, this is talking about the Holy Spirit. And if we look contextually what the Spirit has done in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, the Spirit has sealed those individuals who have believed. If we go to uh, verse 13 of chapter 1, In Him 
you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Uh, those who believe are sealed. Now, this belief comes because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we see in John chapter 16, verse 8. Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's telling them that he must leave. And if he leaves, he will send a, a, a comforter. And this comforter will have a ministry of convicting people of sin. The fact that we know that we are a sinner is the work of the Spirit working in us. This is something that the Spirit works within us, that we feel this need to repent. And then those who believe, those are sealed. Not only does he do this, but Ephesians 1.17, the Spirit gives wisdom and revelation to be able to know Jesus. And this is something that Jesus talked about, that if he would send the Comforter, he will remind them of what he taught. Uh, Ephesians 2.18, the Spirit gives access to the Father. Ephesians 2.22, the, the church is being built together into a holy temple unto the Lord for a dwelling of, of the Spirit. We're no longer strangers and aliens, as it says in, in verse 19. But we are being brought together through the Spirit, the Spirit dwelling. Revelate, uh, Ephesians uh, 3.8, it's the Spirit who reveals the mystery of the church. And Ephesians 3.16, it's the Spirit that strengthens so that Christ can dwell richly in us. Ephesians 4.30, we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, we're to be filled with the Spirit, which is not that we're going to be getting more of the Spirit, but rather that we're going to be yielding ourselves more to the Spirit work in our life. As a person is filled with the Spirit, they're yielding more to the influence of the Spirit. And then uh, Ephesians uh, 6.17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word. It's the only offensive weapon that we have in the armor of God, and it's because of the Spirit, and the Word that He inspired. Ephesians 6.18, we're to pray in the Spirit. Now, we have one Spirit, and this one Spirit is the one who is uniting this, this one body. Now, not only is uh, one body and one spirit, but just as you also were called in one hope. We have one hope. This, this hope is something that you're looking forward to. It, it's something that you're uh, confidently expecting. Sometimes you make plans, and for the best intentions of the world, you wish that it could happen, you really would uh, want something to happen, like you tell your kids, we're going to go do X, Y, Z, but then it's raining or you have a flat tire, and even though you wanted to do this, you just couldn't do it. This is not a hope like that. That's, this is a hope where you can confidently expect it because it's God in who's your hope. And, and this hope, as it says, uh, verse 4, there's one body or one spirit, uh, just as you were called. Uh, that, that's a passive verb. So it's not that you called yourself, but rather you were called into this one hope. And it's uh, of a calling, an invitation, and it's your invitation. It's a personal invitation. It's not a general invitation per se, but it's a personal invitation that has given this hope in which they are found. This one body through one spirit has this one hope, a personal hope. Now, not only is that, but we see in verse uh, 5, 
that we have one Lord. Now, this Lord is um, someone who is in charge by virtue of being the owner. So because they own the thing, they get to tell the thing what to do. Uh, in antiquity at this time, uh, uh, somebody who had a lot of money could go to the market and they could buy uh, a slave. They could buy a slave. And uh, when they'd bring that slave home, by the fact that they owned that person, uh, they could tell them, hey, I want you to clean over here. I want you to go get the potatoes out. I, I want you to go cook, you know, whatever. And, and he could tell that person what to do by the fact that in this time when Paul is writing, the person owned the person. And so is there any idea, is there any concept of ownership of the Lord towards us? Well, yes, there is. Uh, we see over in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, it says, that He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. It, it's through Jesus that we are adopted to the Father. And it says, um, according to His kind intention of His will, verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood. Through Christ's death on the cross, it's what purchased us. No longer are we owning ourselves, but we have been purchased. We belong to someone, which is Christ. And he, he paid with his blood. Now, as we think about this, uh, we're not our own, and, and therefore uh, he, he has bought us. But there's another concept of lordship that is also presented, which has to do with the, the body concept of Ephesians 1, 22 and uh, 23. He's the head. The head tells the body what to do. The body doesn't tell the head what to do. It's the head tells the body. Now, the question is, this is, sounds great theologically, but the question is, do we realize that we've been purchased? Do, do we understand that we're not our own? I mean, if a person in antiquity would go and, and buy a slave and then be able to tell that slave how to, what to do, how to behave, what time to get up, what time to be doing all the work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Should there not be anything like that in our life? Uh, from the moment of salvation that we say, you know what, my lifestyle has changed because I don't own myself. Christ owns me. There's been a change of how I act. and In fact, I, I look more like Christ than I did two years ago, five years ago, 15 years ago. I mean, there, were, there, there should be, by mere ownership, there should be some type of difference in that we should reflect more and more the character of our owner, the person who has redeemed us with, with his own blood. Now, not only is there one body, and one spirit, and one hope, one Lord, but there's one faith. Uh, faith has this idea of that which invokes trust, that which invokes trust. So you could say, so-and-so um, uh, -so is always on time, so I, I trust that if I've told him at 5.30, at 5.30 he's going to be there. Uh, because uh, we have seen the character of such and such person, and they're always arriving on time. We can trust this person. So it has that which invokes trust. It's also the state of believing in something because it's reliable. 
you, you have a trust or a confidence in something you're, you're believing. And we've seen this word faith already appear in several places. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They heard the gospel and they put faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 8. They're saved by grace through faith. It's through faith that they are saved. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, we have access into one body, and that is through faith in Jesus. Uh, how do we have this access? It's through faith. Uh, Ephesians three seventeen, Christ dwells in them through faith. Ephesians uh, 6, uh, 16, uh, we're told that we have this uh, shield of faith to protect us from the burning arrows of the evil one. Uh, <laughs> I was contemplating that and just kind of seeing that image. And while, I've, you know, you, you think about the armor of God and you think about the helmet and the breastplate, et cetera, et cetera, uh, contemplating this a, a little bit, that this is the shield of faith, I was kind of like, you know, it, it'd kind of be nice to have a, a, a literal shield, right, rather than one of faith, you know, like, because uh, you're getting these darts of fiery darts thrown at you, and you're like, wow, I, I, I think we would really need a literal one. But our protection comes not through a literal shield, but one of faith against these burning uh, arrows of the evil one. Now, when we think about faith, there, there can be two types of faith, per se. One could be in objective faith, which would be uh, a context of uh, content of doctrinal truths. And you can see that in a couple of places. Let, let's go to Jude, Jude verse 3. Jude verse 3, where we can see this idea of uh, faith being used as a content of doctrine, a, a theology per se. It says, uh, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. That word faith there is not talking about an individual subjective belief, but rather is a content of doctrine that has been handed down to the saints. Uh, as you work your way back to Ephesians, uh, take the exit at, at 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. And verse 1. It says, The Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, as in doctrine. It's not just a subjective believing, but uh, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Uh, they, they fall away from faith. So you can have faith, meaning... Uh, a content of doctrine, uh, a, a theology, a body of theology, per se. Now, there are a lot of interpreters, as we get back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, there are a lot of interpreters that want to take this one faith to be one set of doctrine that everybody should believe. And, uh, and that has a certain appeal to it. Uh, I know it does. Now, uh, is that possible? Well, uh, I know that God reveals truth, and that truth is singular. It's not like 
I get this revelation of truth and I have my interpretation of it and it's a valid interpretation and then somebody else has another interpretation and, and that's valid for them. No, 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 no. Uh, truth uh, does not waver from one person to another. It's, it's what's revealed. Unfortunately, uh, we all have different levels of education. We have different uh, backgrounds of how to study the scriptures. We have different influences. There's different things going on in our life. And so many times there are not a one set of doctrine, but there's a certain range, per se, of theological truth. And you pick up any systematic theology, and of course the person's what, what they want to say. Uh, my systematic theology is false, and you'll want to read the other person, but here it is. Of course not. No, everybody thinks they're writing the doctrine, right? What is put in the scriptures. They're all saying, this is it. This is the conclusion, and this is true doctrinal truth. Well, there seems to be, uh, I guess, a, a range, an evangelical range that you could say is doctrinally true. Now, so if it's not objective faith that it's talking about here, then it must be subjective faith. So there's one faith. What would it mean if it's a subjective faith? It means that anybody who is saved only comes to salvation through one way, through Jesus Christ. It's not like if you go to England, they have one set of doctrine uh, for sharing the gospel. And then if you go to South Africa, they've got a different gospel that they preach there. And if you go to Venezuela, they got another uh, gospel presentation. And then if you go to India, they have a different. No, 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 no. How does a person get saved? Through believing in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. It's the same. It doesn't matter where you go. Go to Nepal, go to Bangladesh, go wherever you want. It's, it's that. Now, I do know that there is a group of Christians, a, a small group of Christians, that says, well, you don't need to know the gospel to be saved. God can foreordain it, and a person can be saved without even knowing it. That ends up having so many problems in the New Testament that it's, it, it's not really worth addressing. How is there one faith? It, it's because everybody who has this has had to accept Christ as their Savior. There has to be an acknowledgement that Christ died for them and, and that he is a substitute that has redeemed them and has propitiated God's wrath so that they can now have his righteousness and stand before the Lord. There's one faith. Now, not only is there one faith, but there's one baptism. Baptism. What in the world is that? Baptism serves for the purpose of, um, it's a ceremony that involves identification. It's identifying somebody with something. And it's a ceremony that, that is done uh, with water. If we look through the New Testament, we see that there are several baptisms. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, it says, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Talking about when Israel left Egypt and they crossed through the Red Sea. If you go to Acts chapter 19, verse 4, uh, Paul has found some individuals who were disciples of John. And uh, he asked them, uh, Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. And that is in Jesus. He was baptizing in repentance. But then we know <coughs> that uh, Jesus commanded a baptism in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And that the church, when it started in Acts 2, we see Peter is preaching. 
And he gets done with his sermon, and they ask, what, what, what do we have to do? And in Acts 2.38, he tells them you must repent and be baptized. So there's another baptism. And then if you go to Romans chapter 6, uh, 1 through 8, you'll see that there's another baptism, which is the Spirit, and the Spirit identifies the person with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So how is it that Paul is saying here that there is just one baptism? Which baptism is it referring to? Well, it wouldn't make any sense to identify the person with Moses and crossing the Red Sea because they're not crossing the Red Sea. Furthermore, it would be impossible to compare them with John's baptism of repentance because <coughs> they're not being baptized by John for that repentance. So it could be the water baptism that Jesus commanded, or it could be the Spirit's baptism of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And out of those, it's that one, that the Spirit puts the person into the body of Christ. It identifies them as being dead to self and alive for the Lord. Now, there's one baptism which the Spirit does, and it identifies the person with the body of Christ. They're dead to self and alive for the Lord. The question is, do we realize that? Do we realize that we're dead to ourselves? Our passions, our desires, our ambitions, what we were hoping to do is dead. And what we want to live for is the Lord. It's one thing for that to have happened theologically to you. It's another thing to practice that daily. It's one thing to understand the, the scripture text and be able to memorize it and say it. And it's another thing to live it out. Do we identify ourselves as dead to ourselves and alive for the Lord? And then it ends up with uh, verse 6, one God. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Seven ones. This uh, presents God as Father. Father over everything. He's writing to a church that's in Ephesus that has a huge temple to the goddess Diana. The temple is uh, a little bit larger than a football field. Can you imagine? Huge temple. And he's telling them there's one God. And that God is the Father. And he says, he uses three prepositions. Who is over, through, and in. Over everything talks about his sovereignty over everything. Through has this idea of omnipotence, all-powerful. And in talks about his omnipresence. He's everywhere. It, it makes me think of a psalm, and I want us to go there quickly. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, sometimes it's called the Omni-Psalm because it talks about his omnipotence, omniscience, and uh, omnipresence. Uh, here in Psalm 139, verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. 
You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. That's amazing to think about, the knowledge of God. Before, before the word is on your tongue, he already knows. He knows when you get up. He knows when you lay down. He says, verse 5, You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Uh, I was listening to a testimony of a lady ended up becoming pregnant. She was super happy, first child, and uh, some complications started happening and ended up having to give birth at, at 27 weeks. Teeny, tiny little baby. Uh, still not even uh, uh, fat uh, to, to be able to cushion the nerve. So any touching, the baby would just cry in pain. It was hard to, to pick up the little thing, and, and she, she was just a mess. And uh, the nurse offered some help. He said, uh, don't, don't pick up the baby. Rather, uh, encircle her. Put, put your hands around her and put your hand on top. That's what God does. You have enclosed me behind and before, laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. Where, where can I go from your spirit? Or, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed and shield, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as day, and darkness and light are alike to you. Some are in a dark place right now. You're lacking information. I mean, you have a diagnosis, but you don't have a plan yet of what's going to happen. And you lack light to be able to make a decision. You don't know what's going to happen. But God is there. And it doesn't matter that it's dark. Because he sees perfectly even in the dark. And he's there. He's there. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. And this is an amazing psalm. Going back to Ephesians chapter 4, three prepositions. You are over all, you are through all, and you are in all. This is the God who we serve. This is the God who's there, who's present. E even in that darkest moment where you don't know what to do, even in that situation where you're, you, you wish you weren't there, but He's there with you. Now, as we think about this, there's just one body. There's not multiple bodies. You know, like I said, we're not special that we have our own little body. 
all those other Christians are over there, but we have this special body of Christ. No, we're all together. With those believers that we saw in the video. We're all together in one body. And we're called to a unity to walking together. Notice this. How odd he starts. Verse 4 through 6, some have argued that maybe it's a a creed that that was used. People who study creeds say that it kind of looks like it, but then historians say, well, there's no creed like this. And, and, And there's things that are really strange about this. I mean, if you were to read the Apostles' Creed, it starts with God the Father. If you read the Nicene Creed, it starts with God the Father. The symbol of Chalcedon starts with God the Son. Athanasian Creed starts with God the Father. Augsburg uh, Confession of Faith starts with God the Father. The Belgic Confession starts with God the Father. The Heilenberg Confession finally does a change, and it says, what, what is our only comfort in life and death? And then it gives the answer that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient my salvation, and therefore by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. How does Paul start here? He starts with one body. (laughs) The Apostles' Creed starts with God the Father. Did he not get the memo? He starts with the body and then moves down to God the Father, and everybody else starts with God the Father and moves to everything else. It's like he didn't get the memo. He must have been traveling at the time. His cell phone didn't have coverage or something, you know? Got the text late. This is the form we're going to do. We're going to start with the Father, and we're going to move our way outward. And he, he writes, it starts with the body. What's the point of this? Paul starts with the individuals, imploring them to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling, the calling that they receive. And he moves from the group down to the thing that unites them all, which is the Father. The Father who is over all, who is through all, and who is in all. But what unites us, if there is something that unites us? Is it because we all vote the same? Is it because we... We, we all shop at the same stores? Is it because we all have the same education or we went to the same school? What unites us is the Father who is sovereignly, all-powerfully in control of all things. And He has brought us together. Thinking about this, it makes me conclude again that we're not special. And since we're not special, we should humbly serve God and serve others. That's what we should do. God has called us to himself while we were dead in our trespasses of sin. Not because we had potential, but out of his love. And what should our response be to that? We should humbly serve God 
and serve others. I wonder, as we think about that, where do we get our identity from? Some might try to encourage their kids that they're special and try to give them a certain identity, that you're the smart one, you're the creative one, you're the Lord bless you one. Our identity is found in Christ because there's one body, one spirit. That's all. Where do we find our identity? It's in God, who is over all, through all, and in all. Let's pray. Father, there might be someone here who has never accepted Christ as their Savior. And I pray now that as we have this time of invitation, that if they do not have you as Father, that they will come forward, or maybe even talk to somebody beside of them and and ask them how they can have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for the rest of us here that are saved. Maybe we've been thinking ourselves as special, or we've been thinking ourselves as privileged. Father, our identity is only in the fact that we are in a body that's by the Spirit, by one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, connected to you, Father, who is over all, through all, and in all. I pray that we will humble ourselves and serve you and serve one another. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.